So, when people ask you, when they come up to you and they don't know who you are and you're in an elevator, what do you tell them you do? I usually tell them I sell tomatoes. <laughs> and then they say, really? You must be, you must be a really good tomato salesman? Or what, what's, the, what's the response? Well, they say, uh, you know, how can you make money selling tomatoes? So you got to sell a lot of tomatoes. <laughs> Bob Parsons, you've changed the uh, landscape of golf. But among other things, what do you think, when, when you look at everything you've done, what is the most important thing you've accomplished to this point in your life? The most important thing I've ever accomplished is I'm a United States Marine. There you go. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17. I uh, was a, uh, to say I was a terrible student is giving me more credit than I deserve. Uh, they turned that around completely. Um, I, uh, I did a combat tour in Vietnam and, and um, have some uh, tremendous brothers to this day because of that friendships that are just transcend everything you usually know. Uh, and um, when I went to college, I graduated magna cum laude. I've never done that without the Marine Corps. So everything I've ever accomplished, I owe it to the Marine Corps. So to me, my first and biggest accomplishment, I'm a United States Marine. Yeah. I wish I could say the same thing. I just sort of dropped out of high school and, you know, learned a lot outside the Marine Corps. But I have watched Band of Brothers obsessively. Have you seen this? Band of Brothers? Yeah, I did. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, I think uh, I think that was a harrowing experience for anyone that was involved in that. And um, uh, the friendships you form during those times are exceptional. So how did you get into, uh, I mean, most famously, you're going to, when, when people Google you, they're going to see GoDaddy. How did you get involved with that? It, but really, that's a story that a lot of people have already told. So I guess the question is, you know, or maybe it's more of a general question, right? And and when I'm looking at the decisions you've made as far as business, a lot of what I see is uh, you, you had a problem and you wanted to solve it, and then you started a business based around that. Can you talk about that in general as far as the course of all your endeavors? Yeah, you know, that is, that's, that's pretty much been the case uh, with the exception that um, uh, I became a computer hobbyist back in 1975. And uh, that was like uh, being uh, involved in the in the automobile business at the turn of the, you know, the previous century, um, and so so the timing couldn't have been better. Uh, back then, everything was sold on floppy disks in plastic bags. Uh, the, I mean, there was really no significant companies. Sixteen uh, uh, K a RAM was a lot. Uh, so, so it was, it was far different times, but, uh, I became a hobbyist then through a fluke. And what the fluke was is uh, I was working as an accountant for a company in Baltimore. And, um, my job was, I would fly to different companies and just, uh, uh summarize their books and they would decide if they wanted to buy them or not. Well, I was out, uh, on this company, uh, deal in Redwood city, California, and I finished up. 12 hours before my flight was to leave. So I had 12 hours to burn. So I, uh, I found my way onto Stanford campus and uh, went into the bookstore and I bought a book that dealt with how to program in the basic computer language. Very simple, simple book. And um, 
I read that during the the uh, time I had to spare, or, or the 12 hours. And um, on the flight back, I wrote my first program, which was had a, had a discount alone, you know, come up with the interest rate, which was very difficult to do back then. Uh, so, but anyhow, I, I did that. And uh, when I got back there, I was fortunate enough that the company I worked for was owned by one of the first computer companies, a company called Control Data. And in our office, we had this dumb computer terminal. Back then, there was no CRTs or displays or anything like that. And it um, um, looked like a teletype machine. But anyhow, it understood the, pro the basic language. And I learned how to program from getting my, uh, that program to work. And then I taught myself from there. And I, I became more proficient. And then I learned, you know, I went from basic to uh, programming in Pascal. And, and I bought one of the first apples that came out. And then when the first IBM came out in 80, shortly thereafter, I sold my 2E and I bought a, uh, uh, an IBM PC. And then I started my first company in my basement in 1984. Because what I did was, is um, I, since I was an accountant, and I was a CPA, again, passed that exam the first time, never would have done it without the Marine Corps. And I um, wrote a program that would uh, uh, do the family budget and so forth. And I decided in 1984 to start selling it out of my basement. Uh, I had uh, uh, $15,000 at the time, which was all the money I had in the world. I lost, I was like a young guy walking into jail for the first time. I lost that immediately. And then uh, I continued to work on the software, continued to work on it. And the next year from my real job, I got a $25,000 bonus. Where I had $25,000. Part of it was a bonus from my real job. Part of it was what from my tax loss at a $15,000. Part of it was uh, what I was able to save and get credit cards. But anyhow, I dropped the price of my software from... Initially, it was like $129. I dropped it to $99 and to $69 and to $49. Lost everything still. The next year, I, uh, I continued to work on my software. And I mean, I worked on it every moment because my dream was to have something special, you know, that, that uh, would make a difference. And uh, the, the following year, I, um, I didn't have much money. And I had a magazine call me. And they said, uh, we will sell you. This is how crazy things were back then. <laughs> that we will sell you the outside front cover. You know, like being on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Only this was called the Computer Bargain Line in Fort Dodge, Iowa. They said, the cover of our magazine sells for like $16,000. We will sell it to you for $5,000 if you can get us creative in two days. And so I said, um, I said I'll buy it. I didn't have any money, but what I did have back then is I had good credit because I always paid my bills. Everybody thought I had money. Uh, so uh, I, I got my first ad done. I dropped the price of my software to 16 bucks, to 12 bucks, to 12 bucks. And the product, I called it Money Counts. And I said, Money Counts, but it only costs $12. And back then, software was copy protected. It was, you couldn't make a certain number of backups. Uh, some of it was you had to have special codes. Some, and it said, you know, you can't let other people use it. And I said, 
It's not copy protected. Make as many backups as you want. Give it to all your friends. Do anything you want. Just send me 12 bucks. <laughs> and that had made money, and the company was born. So it sounds like the biggest part of that success right there is the revolutionary idea of, you know, not only is it a low price, but you can do whatever you want once, once you've paid it. Is, is that true? Well, there you go. That's what I had to do then. How does that... Uh, I, yeah, how does that different? I, mean, I guess we need to get into golf. So how does that thinking different come into golf? And your, you know, now indelible mark on the game. Well, you know, we're certainly doing a different approach. You know, back then I was selling um, uh, electrical impulses, which basically cost me nothing other than my sweat effort, right? And um, I had no inventory. As a matter of fact, I had as much inventory as I needed because. I was just copying electronic impulses onto a disk and send and sending them out. It cost me a buck, you know, for the twelve. Now, now what we're doing is uh, we're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. We're still working hard to do the job right, like it's never been done before. But in doing so, we're making an, an incredible investment, whereas we didn't back. I didn't back then. Uh, at least not in, in comparison to what's happening now. I mean, for right now, you know, our engineers are, you know, they're under no time constraints. They're under no cost constraints. Uh, the money that we spend to make our clubs, uh, people would be stunned. On, on many of our irons, we pay to, to cost us to make the physical iron what our competitors sell theirs for. <laughs> All right. But we believe that that shows and it translates into the performance of the product. Sure. Do you, um, uh, uh, man, I had a question that's in my tongue. Um, when you, oh, fuck, I had, I had a great question, Bob. I can't remember what it was. Uh, it was, you were talking about, I'm going to need, this might need the first podcast I need to edit. I usually don't edit the podcast, Bob. Oh, I'm fine if you had it. Um, I was going to say that uh, you... Hmm, this is unusual. You, you got me speechless. Do you have a question for me? <laughs> yeah, what's the question you forgot? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Let's talk about motorcycles. Do you like bikes? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, have, uh, I tend to do things I enjoy doing. Um, my father told me when I started my first business, he said, you should always do what you love because when you love something, it tells you all its secrets. And um, to me, there's never been a thing that I've ever done to make money. I've done things that I like to do. And, you know, while, trust me, I'm very happy to make money and, and I, I try to make the decisions that, that help that, but first and foremost, the thing that I'm interested in is doing the job better than anybody else could do the job. At least that's the goal. Okay, I remember my question. It was, you seem like the type of person to not really be interested in advice. Uh, but I'm curious to know, when you were exploring the idea of creating a golf business, I imagine a lot of people said it was a bad idea. Is that true? Everybody said it was a bad idea. Nobody said... Hey, Bob, good choice. 
you know, I I had people say, um, you know, so and so, and and I and I cannot name names. You know, was involved. You know, made a run at the golf business, and you know they have all these smart people, this, that, and the other thing, um, and they they uh, lost their shirt, and um, now I can't think of a worse business to be in, and and uh, it's down, and people are you know not playing golf the way they were, and um, I thought it sounded like a marvelous time, so. You know, I just said, okay, well, maybe you guys are right. I said, but then maybe you're not. So sometimes when people think you're crazy, it's a pretty good sign. How um, how do you um, how do you how do you make that decision, right? I mean, because it's not. It sounds like it's not strictly a business decision. Like it sounds like you're going off of a gut feeling, and it seems like that's probably a trait that a lot of very successful entrepreneurs have. Is that true? Yeah, well, that's pretty much the way I've made every decision. Um, I'm not much of a planner or, you know, if you ask me what the five-year plan is, um, we'd have to talk in generalities as opposed to, uh, well, these are the numbers and this is the return and this is my exit strategy. Uh, I even share my exit strategy. My exit strategy is cremation. Um, so, uh, you know, when that happens, uh, I'll be done. So, I mean, what's the deal with Bob Parsons? Is he just really, really, really lucky? No, I, I don't think so. You know, I think, uh, make no mistake, luck has something to do with it. But where the skill comes in is the spot when the luck happens and, and, and take advantage of it. Um, what I do is, is I persevere. And I, I, when I have uh, something that I'm working on, uh, I do... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't get discouraged. I wake up every morning uh, like I'm going to batting practice, and I keep swinging at it. Uh, and sometimes, uh, like for example, when uh, GoDaddy got going, and when Parsons Technology, which was the business I talked about earlier, that got going, it took me three years of swinging without hitting the pitch uh, before before anything really happened. But uh, I don't discourage anything. Is that true? Three years. That, 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 would be, uh, that would be hard for a lot of people to continue. Well, you know, it, I, I guess, and I guess there's people that would uh, hang on for 10 or 20 or for the rest of their lives. But if you have a vision and you can, you can see it and you just got to find the right way to do it, well, there you go. You know, the one thing I'll say, I know of no successful business people who haven't been on their ass a time or two. And uh, so being successful in business with with what we know, uh, which is very little, is you learn by making mistakes and learning, instead of learning what to do, you learn what not to do. And um, so I was pretty good at learning what not to do. I mean, I spent a lot of time learning what not to do. Is there a specific uh, training or experience in the Marines that really drilled home the idea of, uh, well, I can't remember the word you used, but it's basically dedication? Well, I, I would say you can summarize it in one word, which is discipline. And discipline is having the stamina to see your responsibilities through um, and the realization that 
you know, you're not the only one that depends on that. You know, it, it impacts other people, particularly in a military or combat situation. Um, and so, um, you know, the discipline, what I, I learned from them, I mean, I, I was a pretty unfocused lad when I, when I went into the, into the military, and I was a completely different guy when I came out. And I mean, I, you know, knew you're supposed to get up a certain time. Up I was, you needed to do this. I did it. Uh, didn't have to be comfortable. If I had to carry a, a 17 pound box of machine gun ammo five miles where you feel like your arm's coming out of your socket, you just keep doing it because you got the discipline to do it. You know, people are counting on you to do it. So you're saying, uh, I've never heard it put that way, but you're saying discipline is basically a selfless act. Yeah, well, you know, it is, it is selfless, and it's, re it's a realization that responsibility means something. I mean, you know, they taught me discipline. They taught me responsibility. They taught me pride. They taught me pretty clean as dirty. Whoa. Those sorts of things. That's the Marine Corps. Pretty clean is dirty. Yeah. What, uh, what, um, what's your favorite part about golf? I'm not sure I understand. Golf? What's your favorite part about it? What's my favorite part about it? I like, um, I like getting out and playing. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, you know, I don't, I don't gamble at all except on the golf course. Uh, my friends and I play a game called Sweat, which, which I, uh, we all just conjured up over the years. It's the perfect gambling game, and uh, I absolutely love doing that. What uh, can you describe the uh, general rules to Sweat? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well, here's here's the way it is. Sweat is uh, played for points, and when you uh, uh, first tee off. Um, anybody can double the bet, which is called a roll, at any time. So someone could roll me, and um, um, after, they, after they roll me, I'll either take it or I don't. If I don't take the bet, whatever the point was worth, that's conceded. Okay, so uh, uh, we, we play 100 a point. And um, let's say I do take the bet, then the bet goes from it doubles, it goes to $200 a point. Now, the kicker in sweat is when you roll somebody and they take the bet, a half stroke goes with it. Oh. And that changes everything. <laughs> and so anyhow, this continues until, I mean, you can you can roll and, you know, double the bet back and forth as often as you want. So a hole can end up at 1,000. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen them at 5,000, but... But anyhow, that's under different different circumstances, and I don't do that all the time. But when I do, it's you know it's it's memorable. Hey, but but anyhow, so you know as it doubles and goes back and forth, and the strokes come and go away, uh, it continues until a ball is in the hole. So you could be on a green and still be doubling the bet back and forth, or so forth in this in this game, and. Um, uh, a birdie will winning with a birdie doubles the bet. Winning with an eagle quads the bet, and um, an ace is ten x. So that's the, I mean that's the 
basics. There's a lot of nuances to it. Have you ever seen an ace within the confines of the sweat game? Absolutely. Really? I, I got paid both times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's and, impressive. And, and, and I didn't make the ace. I made the ace once. Okay. And uh, uh, my buddy made the ace another time. And how many hole-in-ones do you have on your uh, career? Two. There you go. Yeah. So that's more than most. Well, you know what? More than I ever thought I'd have. <laughs> when did you uh, When did you get introduced to the game of golf? Doesn't It doesn't sound like you grew up with it, or, or did you? You know, I did and I didn't. My father was a scratch golfer. Okay. And he used to, we used to, I grew up in, uh, in Baltimore, and uh, East Baltimore, and uh, there's a golf course there called Clifton Park. And I think Clifton Park is, is one of those golf courses where today one of the hazards is getting robbed and mugged. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a tough place. To get, you know, so, but, but anyhow, that's where I grew up. And uh, my father used to go over there all the time and hit balls on the range. And he'd take me and my brother. And we were little guys. And every once in a while, we would uh, we'd get to swing a club or he'd show us the grip. But mostly we chased rabbits. Um, I didn't pick the game up seriously until I was in my 30s. Okay. And uh, when I was in my 30s is when I was with Parsons Technology. And there was a, you know, a number of guys I worked with. And, and we all took the game up at the same time. And then we all got better at the same time. And, you know, we would, we would it started where we'd take a half a day off on Saturday. I mean, on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. And then, um, and then we found a resort that we'd like to go to. So we'd take a half a day off on Wednesday. We would be on the tee the first light of the morning, you know, play, play uh, another 18, and then zoom, zoom back. And then, and then it went from, you know, uh, Wednesday and Thursday morning to Wednesday and Thursday morning and Saturday and Sunday and golf trips. And you know how it goes. Yeah. And so how do you come up with the title, PXG? What about the title? How did you come up with the name of the, of the company, PXG? Well, PXG.com was one of the three-letter names that was available. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was a number of them. And uh, PXG, uh, my first name happens to be Parsons. Uh, we were going to be in the golf business, and that was just a matter of figuring out what the X was. <laughs> so we went with Extreme. I mean, that's, uh, that's marketing right there. There you go. That's pretty smart. Well, that's how it happened. Um, oh, that's great. I mean, that, that's a totally satisfactory answer. What, uh, but, but you came at it with uh, a need, right, that you were seeking to fulfill. Uh, it, what, what was that? Well, you know, what, what I noticed, see, I also own a, uh, a golf club called Scottsdale National. And um, I got to meet, meet a number of... Um, uh, very successful businessmen and women, uh, and their game is very important to them. And uh, you know, I, I got to think that you know, you know, some some of those guys, you know, if you give them fifteen yards when they drive, they paint themselves blue, right? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it just it just didn't matter, right? You know, so uh, you know, they pay anything, whatever, fifteen yards, right? So I got to I got to thinking about. Um, maybe, um, you know, maybe there was something I could do. Now, there's more of a backstory. I always bought a lot of golf clubs. Unlike buddies of mine, I never got fancy cars. 
I never, you know, never gambled into casinos or off the golf course. You know, I didn't do any. I drove Dodges and Chevys. And and um, so what happened was um, um, I would buy golf clubs when they came out. You know, I would uh, sometimes I would have a bad day and I'd be in Florida and a buddy of mine is a club, you know, was a club dealer in uh, in Iowa. And I'd, I'd call him and say, yeah, I had a really bad day. He says, I got some new clubs you got to try. He FedEx them that day. I'd walk out on the tee the next day, and there wouldn't be one club in my bag that was the same. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got to the point where I would try most new things and would try to understand why they did what they did and all that. I studied ballistics. I studied aerodynamics, a little bit of uh, metallurgy and I mean uh, just enough to to be dangerous and I got to understand what worked and what didn't and most things were hype um, so you know I, I met uh, my buddy Mike Nicolette and we were talking one day and I asked him I said Mike why don't and, and by the way before I preface this I want to say that I think Ping is one of my far better competitors I think the world did a company. Okay, so this is no knock on pink. Well, their irons are quite similar right now. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> on the on the of every other competitor on the market, they're the most similar. I would don't you, think would they you? are. No, really, no. So you and you, you and I are going to have to knock heads on that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm curious to know what the answer is to that. Actually, okay, to what? Uh, I was under the impression that the i500s are of all of the current competitive irons, they are using the most similar technology. But right. I but I really know much less than you about that. So. Well, I, I I don't believe so. Okay. I'll just I'll just say that that's the answer that I have, and I believe that uh, uh, they have a very different look. It's a very different product. Yeah. Yeah. Not not saying that they are comparable. Merely saying that they are. Uh, attempting to be similar. Well, you know, I really have no comment on that because <laughs> I know what you're doing, <laughs> and uh, uh, I just, you know, I just, I'm just going to have to say we're going to have to agree to disagree. It's fair enough. All right. Uh, what you were saying about Ping, though. Okay. So, so anyhow, I said, why don't companies get a lot better from year to year? Um, and, uh, you know, the thing he said to me was, he said, because, you know, we're under cost constraints, we got to meet certain price points, we have certain delivery dates we have to meet, got time constraints, so our hands are tied in a lot of ways, all right? So he says, so some of the things that we'd like to do, we can't do. And I, you know, and I talked to him and I said, suppose we ha I had a situation where I had a company where had, the engineers had no cost constraints, pay, you know, whatever you want, right, as long as it made sense and it, and there was a, a performance return and you had as much time as you wanted and you could take all the time in the world if you wanted to uh, to develop it, but your only constraint was performance, right, and, 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 and that's it. And uh, he said, you know, I think it would make a difference. So, uh, you know, he, he contacted me a while later, said he'd like to join me. And, um, and then uh, another fellow there did, Brad Schweikert. Um, and I went and talked to my right-hand guy 
who is now the chief operating officer, uh, Steve Gabay. I said, Steve, looks like we're in the golf business. God help us. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think, um, what has been the most surprising part of having your own golf business now? Well, um, I'm going to say that, you know, my father told me, he said, used to say, you know, it's always going to seem to you like the other guy's business is easier. He says, don't you ever believe it. Now, I, I will tell you that I believe all businesses are difficult. Along those lines, I will tell you that I think the golf business is especially difficult. Uh, so... Uh, uh, you you got to really be on your toes to be successful in this business. And it is a matter of over-delivering, things being what you say, uh, panache of the brand, knowledge, the employee base, all those things. But um, uh, we're successful in this business. I'm going to be very happy, man. What, uh, I mean, you know, what do you say to, you know, there's all these people talking about how, uh, golf being in trouble or whatever, whatever, you know, the golf business, X, Y, Z. I mean, what, do you, do, are you concerned with that? No, I'm not concerned with that at all. And, I, and, and I'll tell you why. I think golf, the golf consumers in the country as a big whole are, um, uh, you know, they constrain and expand you know, as time goes by. And and what happens, though, I think when you lose golfers, like has happened over the past number of years, I think it's went the other way the past year a little bit, uh, the guys that are on the fringe, they really don't play that much, that don't spend much money, you know, or family men where they can't, you know, they can't really get away and they got commitments and, and all that. I think that's the part. The part that I cater to, which are the people who now have the time to play and uh, have the earnings where they can pay to play, I, I don't think that's going to. I don't think that's changed ever. Um, have you have you incorporated golf much into your world travels? You know, as much as I could, as much as I could, I was able to play golf a uh, uh, year before last in. Um, um, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and then uh, not too long ago, uh, Hong Kong and and um, um, Cambodia. Cambodia was that uh, that's near. Was going to Cambodia strange as a Vietnam vet? Um, going to Vietnam was strange as a Vietnam vet. <laughs> I uh, I went to Vietnam for the first time. Returned in uh, November before last. And um, I was asked to go there uh, to keynote international golf conference. And at first they wanted to have the conference in October and I said, I can't do it in October. And they said, well, we'll move it. And I said, really? And uh, then they said, um, I said, I will do it in November on one condition I don't want to be around anything that has to do with the war. And they said, done. And so I was a little apprehensive going over there. And uh, when I got there, I fell in love with it all over again. I have never felt so good about being anywhere in my life as I was in 
Da Nang and Vietnam and that whole area where I served around there. Didn't recognize a thing because everything progressed uh, so long, and it's been uh, almost 40 years since I, 47 years since I was there. Um, no, 49, almost 50. Wow. Almost 50 years, yeah. So, uh, so you know, I just said, you know, I just uh, couldn't believe it. So I told my wife, as much as I love her, I said, if I ever get cut from the team, I might move to Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't, we, we had the chance to go to Thailand. Golf took us to Thailand, and I remember, you know, well, first of all, I was surprised that Thailand is apparently one of Asia's larger golf destinations. People from Japan and Korea go to Thailand because of the, it's so expensive in their home country to play golf. But I just, I remember being a really, uh, a really wonderful paradise there. Yeah, oh, it was. You know, I, I got to play um, golf in, uh, in uh, Phuket, Thailand. I long, when I sold Parsons Technology to Intuit, there was a time when they were changing things over and they wanted me just at it away. So they gave me this around the world golf trip on the Concord that took about a month. And I uh, said, sure. <laughs> and so I, uh, one of the countries I played in was, was Thailand. I feel like uh, going on an around-the-world trip with Bob Parsons on a Concord would be pretty fun. I had a blast. I had a blast. We were talking about I was a single guy. I was um, playing golf. Uh, you know, it just, was just a happy-go-lucky time. We'll take a quick break. All right, everybody. Got a great read for you here. Stay tuned till the end of it because there is a massive deal at the end of this read. Precision Pro Golf, maker of the NX7 Series Rangefinder, is proud to bring you this spot on the Eric Anders Lang Show. The Eric Anders Lang Show is bringing golf to the masses, which is pretty rad. And Precision Pro is bringing accurate measurements to golfers at an affordable price. Their NX7 Series Rangefinder was named Best Value Golf Rangefinder by MyGolfSpy.com. You heard that right. Best Value Golf Rangefinder at MyGolfSpy.com. With all the bells and whistles that golfers love without the bloated price tag that other companies charge, it's the perfect rangefinder to add to your golf bag this year. So right now, Precision Pro is offering $20 off the NX7 Series Rangefinder. Go to PrecisionProGolf.com, PrecisionProGolf.com, and use coupon code ERIC, E-R-I-K. Do not spell my name wrong this time, folks, for a free a lifetime battery replacement for wait for twenty dollars off, and then you also get free lifetime battery replacement service. Whoa, dude! You know how many times my battery dies in my rangefinder where I'm just like, Ugh, grind, give me a battery. They're so expensive. If you can actually get take advantage of that, you could eventually get a free rangefinder by the end of the time. Uh, yeah, they're not joking, folks. Lifetime battery replacement services. You can check out the awesome reviews on their website or on Amazon. Amazon, that's what's up. Uh, to read what other golfers are saying about Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. Once again, go to precisionprogolf.com and use coupon code E-R-I-K, K as in awesome, for $20 off. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. All right, folks, you know my favorite golf shoe, don't you? I think you do. It's three-stripe life, y'all, and that means Adidas. Um... And so anyway, I just wanted to tell you that when I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Tour 360, obviously, and uh, they've made a huge update to the Tour 360, and uh, the 
two letters that it's concerned with are the letters X and T, okay? The Tor 360 XT changes the game, okay? It's lighter, so your feet feel even better after a round. By the way, a light golf shoe is what I'm all about. A heavy, there are some other companies making heavy golf shoes, and I'm just like, by the way, I weigh enough. There's enough going on. I'm carrying a golf bag. I'm carrying my team. Um, Tor XT changes the game. It's lighter, so your feet feel even better after a round, and it still features that boost, y'all. Do you know where boost comes from? It And boost is cool because it only comes in black and white. I don't know if you noticed that. And actually, they the guy who made boost like was going to bring it to some other, you know, they, they were shopping it around, and everyone else said no. Adidas was like, I'll take that boost, even though it's only black and white. And what did Adidas do with it? They made it awesome. I'm looking at boost right now on my feet boost on my feet uh and it has an x-shaped traction system that gives you insane stability literally it's not sane it's literally crazy your feet will literally be like i'm crazy best part it comes in spikeless Ooh, that's tight the first spikeless ever in the history of the tour 360 crazy comfortable and perfect for the course get your pair at adidas.com thank me later follow adidas golf for all the latest and greatest that's all true statements right there check it out go support adidas because they're a good company good people i like it Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right, and we are back. Um, what, uh, how did you find, uh, how do you, have you been to Scotland at all? Gone there much for golf? Have I been to where? Uh, Scotland. I've been to Scotland years ago when I I first started playing golf back during my parts of technology days. And I played uh, uh, the old course and um, Glen Eagles. And uh, you must obey the rules in Scotland. <laughs> How do you I think? Uh, I think they, um, they had, had some rule where uh, you know, if when when you're in, this is like years and years ago, um, if you were in the lobby after after six p.m., you must wear a coat and a tie, right? And I was in there half smoked up in a bathing suit, and of course, then I had to go change. Didn't work out. Didn't work <laughs> out. How does Bob Parsons feel about rules? I feel I feel like you. Uh, you I mean, it's interesting because because you're I would I would expect your marine background would would give you one perspective on rules, but at the same time, it seems like your business background is all about not following those rules. How, how do you? Am I? What's the what's the middle line there? Well, you know, I do I do follow a lot of rules. You know, I, I do things like uh, obey all the laws and and uh, you know pay my taxes and all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, from a business standpoint. Uh, what I've been willing to do and one of the keys to our success was to break with tradition and to uh, do things differently than than has been done in the past. And so, you know, if they were like unspoken business rules, yeah, we broke those, but that'd be about it. Yeah. What, uh, and, and so do you see, uh, I mean, you know, the golf business in general, how would you describe their relationship to, well, you know, you, there is a divide between tradition and rules, and, and golf has a very specific, um, you know, connection to both of those. How, how has been your experience of, of working within that boundary? Well, you know, first of all, it all depends where you are. Like, like take Augusta National, who 
to you know to me and like many other golfers, I consider that to be sacred ground, and you know and they have a number of rules that uh, uh, you know where you have to wear a coat to dinner and a, or maybe a coat and a tie to dinner and you need to be with the member and things like that. But that's Augusta and that is their tradition, and I get it. Um, uh, and and Augusta without that wouldn't be Augusta. And, and there's other places like it, like Pine Valley and Cypress Point and on and on. Now, the, the club that I own, Scottsdale National, we only have one rule, and that is no member shall ever get in the way of another member's good time. Other than that, do what you want to do, you know, as long as you're not causing someone else a problem. And uh, with us, uh, that's, that's what we're about. I mean... Uh, uh, all these other places are old money. We're nouveau riche, baby. <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you see the difference culturally between old money and new money? You know, old you know I don't I first of all you know I say that more in jest. There's a number of people that belong to our club that would be oh you could call them old money, and and they're you couldn't tell them apart from anybody else. But it's, it's just that uh, uh, the places that are looked at, like, you know, with the term old money, like a number of the clubs in the Hamptons and, and some of the others that I, that I just made, you know, they have that tradition, that new money, I mean, that old money tradition, and um, where it's generation after generation of members and that sort of thing. With us, I mean, we're all brand new. How do you think that, I mean, so, you know, there is like a a, a a perspective problem with new people that are coming to golf. Would you agree? Well, you know, it depends. First of all, you know, on one end, if you're new and you're coming to golf, uh, golf is like sentencing, learning the game is like sentencing somebody to be tortured, right? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna make you absolutely as crazy and as humbled and embarrassed as we can for five years. Sure, I'll do that, right? <laughs> so, you know, so people that are just starting the game, I mean, you know, that's, that's one thing. And, but people that are, you know, that are, well, I guess if you're not starting the game, you're in the game, right? That's, uh, you know, that's changing what people want to do and so forth. I think this year's changing in the USGA's roles. I thought they were excellent. And uh, I really appreciated it. Um, you know, I, I noticed that uh, the scotch still comes out of them. You know, if you want to take a, you hit the ball out, you can't find it. You want to take a drop, take two strokes, not one. You know, that's just like the scotch used to, you know, when they catch somebody, a little kid shoplifting, they nail his ear to a pole. Right? Is that until, true? Oh, yeah, yeah, until he was able to get his ear off the nail. That kid, you know, I guess it worked, you know, but uh, that's the type of mentality that golf rules are based on. Right. Now, the one rule I wanted to see, I wanted to see that a divot in the fairway, a divot in the fairway is ground under repair. Take your ball out of it. But, no. I don't think you're alone. No. I think a lot of people feel that way. But the scotch says, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> What to, you, you seem to be pretty comfortable with your success, but I'm curious to know, at what points do you pinch yourself? I don't ever. I don't ever. I don't think about it that way. Um, I look at my... I'm, 
I'm more comfortable with the mailman and uh, and the cop, you know, buddies of mine that are doing that blue collar, that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that's my background. That's who I am. And so, you know, never, never do I uh, look at and, and think, God, look, you know, look what I've accomplished because, you know, I feel a lot of it has been luck. A lot of it has been just hard work. And um, I'm, if, you know, you, you start getting caught up in that, you lose sight of what you got to do tomorrow. So all I do is I think about what I got to do. Um, and, uh, and then uh, my wife and I, we look at now more than ever how much we can help. I mean, we have 14 businesses that we run in Yam Worldwide, one of which is PXG. And um, uh, a lot of the money that we make, we give away. So we, we are given to, this year, we will give to charity a million bucks every 17 days, I think. Wow. Yeah. And, um, uh, I mean, that's what we do. And of everything I do, that's the thing I like the best. What do people uh, not know about, about you? What do people not know about me? Um, uh, they're putting a, a tux on me. It's like putting a saddle on a hog. Um, had to be one of the things, um, I don't know. I'm just a pretty simple guy. You know, right now I drive all Dodges. I love their brotherhood of muscle. I love the fact that, um, um, you know, the Italians are involved in designing American cars. I mean, that's about time. I mean, you know, you know, the Germans make a wonderful, wonderful car. But if you really want something beautiful, have the Italians do it. Uh, I've I've heard it said uh, in a couple places that you're actually an introvert. Is that true? Um. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I am. I used to be. I used to be so shy when I got out of the military and got my first office job that uh, anybody in authority, I would have trouble even finishing a sentence around them. I mean, I was just petrified. Um, and it was, uh, it was a hard time for me. And the way, the way I got past that was I read about Charles Lindbergh, you know, the guy that did the first transatlantic flight. And he grew up on a farm, and he had no social skills. And the way he learned to do what he needed to do was he would identify certain people around him that he thought were good, and then he would start try imitating them in small ways. I did that. took me about five or ten years, and then I was able to be who I am now. Um, as far as um, being an introvert, I would just soon be home with my wife than anywhere, and so I don't like being places where there's a lot of people Although I do go there and I've learned to do public speaking and all that, but all of it took took a big effort on my part. Yeah. What's the hardest part of it, you think? Well, the hardest part of doing all that is getting to the point where you don't judge yourself. And you know, when you you talk to your your buddies or you know people, your people, members of your family, and you exchange back and forth. You don't judge yourself. You just are who you are. Well, learning to be who you are when you're in front of 500 or 700 people 
or doing a doing an interview or being on television. Um, that takes a point where you, you know, it takes a while to get that faith in yourself. Now I'm 68 years old. I mean, I didn't I didn't learn it when I was 17, and uh, I'm fine. You know, I'm finally starting to get it together. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe by the time I'm 90, I'll really do a show. I think that's probably one of the. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know. I'm only 38, but uh, it's probably that's probably one of the most important lessons one can learn in their lifetime. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld does on that does this little routine where he said the number two fear people have is dying. The number one fear is public speaking. That means that if these people we're at a funeral, they would rather be in the casket instead of delivering the eulogy. <laughs> That's fucked up. <laughs> How do you want to die? I feel like you've thought about this. How do I want to die? I don't know. I'll, I mean, however the Lord wants to take me, that's the way it'll be. I never, I never thought about it, you know. I would, um, I'd like it to be, you know, as less painful as, as possible, but it is what it is. I mean, I really have no, no, uh, no say so over that. I mean, I've been through, I've been through times when I thought I was going to die, period, and uh, and I didn't. I've been, you know, I was a combat marine in Vietnam. I um, uh, was with the uh, first battalion, twenty six Marines, north of Da Nang, and. Uh, when, when I got there, I was one of the replacements for um, five casualties they had a few days earlier. Four were fatals. Um, the um, guy, and to, to a man, it was all the senior men. And so all the guys that were left were the greenest. The guy who was made the uh, squad leaders, a dear friend of mine to this day, uh, he... he um, um, he was 19, been there like six weeks, and they made him squad leader, and he turned out to be brilliant. But I, I can remember thinking about, I thought a lot about dying back then, and um, I, I had what I think was an anxiety attack when I was alone thinking about, uh, thinking about what we were, we were up against. And uh, I accepted the fact that I'd die over there, and then it didn't bother me a bit. Then I just made two promises. The first promise was is that I would do whatever I could to be a good Marine so my folks back home would be proud of me. And second, that if at all possible, I'd be alive mail call. And so they were the two things that got me through that totally. You know, I think um, it, the, the idea that uh, the life you're living, the decisions you've made for, in this case, what you're describing as being in the Marines— Mm -hmm. So, so those decisions are now putting you in a place where you're going to uh, do do something honorably that also might cause you to die. That that is uh, is uh, where else do you, you don't get that anywhere else? Well, no, not lately. Uh, so you're right. I mean, I, I mean that is 
pretty much the military or anybody that's in law enforcement or, you know, firefighters or first responders or anybody that ilk going into a situation knows what that's like. Or, or even somebody, uh, a civilian that is, is part of something that gets hijacked or, you know, you just, just life deals you that hand. And then you have to figure out how to, how to think about it and how to react to it. Now, obviously, for people listening to this podcast, not everybody has served uh, in any capacity. But what, what can you say? At what point do you start learning a lesson by saying, what, what do you get? How, why must you be okay with dying in order to do your job at that point? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know that everybody is. I, I know that I was. Uh, but, uh, you know, as, as long as, as you accept the result, and I've, I've used this in my business career a number of times, and, you know, most of the stress in life is worried about what the result's going to be. Well, I've already accepted the worst result, and then I don't have any more stress over that. I, I kind of feel like I know what that's going to be. So I'll just do what I got to do each day to somehow make it better to be a mail call. And um, there you go. And then sometimes it works out. I, did, I don't understand that word. You said that word twice now. A mail call? Mail? No, when they would, they would, they would um, you know, we would get snail mail letters. A mail call. Yeah. Right. So if they, yeah, they I'm, stop. I'm, 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 I'm from Baltimore. Eric. You caught me a little slack, you know. <laughs> You know, you know I'm, I'm thrilled you can understand me. I got, I got every word but that. Mail call, basically, if you're not present for mail call, you're dead. <laughs> well, that'd be dead or wounded, yeah. <laughs> and so your letters wouldn't be there to hand to you. Did you have any fun while you were in the, in the Marines overseas? Was there any moment where you were like, this is actually fun? You know, with the way they depict it in the movies, it's kind of glamorized. Is, that, is it ever like that? Smoking cigarettes, like drinking... LSD. You know, you know the interaction between you and your buddies sometimes is a lot of fun. It was always fun when we uh, broke ambush in the morning. What does that mean, broke ambush? Well, we would go out on ambush at night and and wait for um, uh, North Vietnamese soldiers to come in and get this rice that we were guarding, and then you know we'd take care of that. Uh, but the war, that war, was fought at night. And when you break ambush is when you're done with the ambush and uh, the sun is up, it's a brand new day, the war is over for a while, and you can kind of walk back to your base and, you know, who knows, might even be able to sit in the beer tent and have beer. I mean, you know, in, in, in Vietnam, it was the only time in my life where, and keep in mind, I was about 130 pounds, and I would, I would drink a can of beer in the beer tent, one beer, I would be soaking wet and hammered. <laughs> Man, I mean, so did you guys listen to music and shit? Did you have concerts or was that, is that no, just all the movies? No, no, we didn't have any concerts. Are you kidding Into me? the USO or anything like that? Well, not, not out in the bush. <laughs> you know, the guys, the guys in the rear area got to go to that, but the guys in the, uh, the grunts or the, in the armies, 11 Bravo or O3s in the Marine Corps, and they didn't say, oh, there's a show. Let's bring all these guys in. And No. All right. So there's probably some people out there listening to this, some young, young, young men and women who want to have their own business or whatever. What are you going to say to them? 
Well, here's, here's what I say is, um, uh, first of all, you can do it. Second, if you want to do something, find something you love and be engaged in your business for one reason, and that's to do the job right. And the rest will take care of itself. If you're in business and you want to go into it to make money, you'll make all the wrong decisions. And uh, chances are you won't do the job right. So do what you love. Is that true? So you didn't want to get rich? Never. That's impressive. I'm sorry you ended up rich. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, you know, sometimes stuff works out, right? Yeah. What um, I ask a lot of people this at the end of the interview. Uh, would you write a letter to golf for me really quick? Dear golf, whatever you want to say. I would say it would be, dear golf, you know, I've been, uh, I've, I've, I've been in love with you for 38 years. You're very frustrating, right? You're, um, you're very fickle, but sometimes you just know how to make it happen. I love you, Bob. All right, thanks for your time, Bob. I appreciate it.